On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And welcome to the About Books podcast and program. In this episode, we'll introduce you to Tracy Hall. She's the executive director of the American Library Association, and we'll talk about the country's public libraries and some of the challenges that they face. But let's start this week with the publishing industry news. Well, the fallout continues from the recent decision by a Tennessee school board, which removed Art Spiegelman's graphic novel on the Holocaust, Mouse. Now, it's a Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel, but it was removed from the eighth-grade curriculum due to language and profanity. The book is based on interviews with Mr. Spiegelman's father, who was a Holocaust survivor. And Mr. Spiegelman commented on the decision, quote, It's part of a continuum and just a harbinger of things to come. The control of people's thoughts is essential to all of this. Well, the sales of Mouse have soared since the news of its removal. Four versions of the book are in Amazon's top 20 bestsellers. Also in the news, the library of the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was sold at auction. $2.4 million was brought in from that. The auction included over 1,000 books. The late Justice's copy of the 1957-58 Harvard Law Review that included her personal annotations sold for $100,000. Other items that were sold, personalized copies of books by Justices Sotomayor and Breyer. In other news, PEN America has announced finalists for their annual literary awards. This year's nonfiction nominees, Andrea Elliott, Invisible Child, Taya Miles, All That She Carried, Reuben Miller, Halfway House, Sarah Schulman, Let the Record Show, and Clint Smith, How the Word is Passed. Their winner will be announced at an awards ceremony February 28th. PEN America is an organization which encourages free expression in writing. Also in the news, Christy McLean, who is the executive director of the publishing industry analyst group NPD BookScan predicts that print book sales will fall this year following two years of growth. She cites the potential rise in the price of books, supply chain issues, and a change in consumer behavior as reasons for the slide. Book sales were up 9% last year. Over 800 million print books were sold in 2021. Well, there are over 100,000 public libraries in the United States. Most of them are members of the American Library Association. And we want to introduce you this week to Tracy Hall, who is the executive director of the American Library Association. 
Ms. Hall, thanks for being with us. As you know, you don't start off as executive director of the AELA. What was your first job in a library? My first job in the library was working with young adults. I came to library, Seattle Public Library, and in 19, let's see, in 1995. And I'd come to the library after working in homeless shelters and directing a homeless shelter for teenagers. And I realized that uh, literacy and sometimes limited literacy was sometimes at the root cause of chronic um, homelessness for people who are unhoused. And I really wanted to get at that. And I saw libraries as, as really the opportunity to do that. When did you start going to libraries as a child? <laughs> so this is funny because I am uh, visiting my family right now in Los Angeles where I was born and raised. And I was born and raised in the Watts area of, of uh, Los Angeles, of the city of Los Angeles. And I just visited my home, my first branch library. And in fact, my I was engrossed in a book and my brother was coming to, to meet me, to pick me up. We were going out to dinner and he'd been sitting in front of me in the library. He says for several minutes before I even looked up and registered, there was someone else there. And as we walked out into a, a car, he said, you know, this library is what made you a librarian. You used to beg me not to take you to the park, not to take you with me, you know, with his, his, his older friend, but to this library and you still haven't changed. So I have to credit uh, the uh, LA Public Library and particularly the Watts branch of the LA Public Library for introducing me to a love for libraries and a love for reading for sure. Well, Tracy Hall, what was that magic ingredient that got you into the library? I think, first of all, the opportunity of feeling like I belonged and I could have some ownership of this amazing institution. There was something about being able to get my first library card and be able to take home a library book. I don't even remember what the circulation period was, what the loan period was, but if it was two weeks, I really felt like that. I saw my my parents and my grandparents going to the bank and and going to uh, you know all of the doctors' offices and all those uh, types of things. And the library was really, I think, a, my, my first sense of personal responsibility that I I could borrow something, read it, enjoy it, protect it, and return it so that others could have the same use. There was something about that sense of and I'm just going to say now civic responsibility uh, that I think in inspired a, a greater sense of responsibility in, in me. And I think that was really the ability to borrow and return and then also get something else that someone else had borrowed and returned and, and read before me. That was immense to me. That was, that was huge. Well, since 1995, when you first started working in a library, has the mission changed? And what about the technology? Well, I don't think the mission has changed. So when we think about the American Library Association, and and it's almost 146 years old uh, today, founded in 1876, the mission remains the same. And that is basically information access and education for all. And and I think that has stayed true and our, our, our responsibility to protect that, you know, whether it's intellectual freedom, access, service, professionalism, uh, all of those things that I think underscore our core values uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the core values that underscore that mission remain the same, but the technologies have changed immensely, right? So 
today we are in, um, just think about the first four months of the pandemic, right? We saw uh, the rise in digital reading and ebook lending increase by 40%. And we've also seen reading stay true. In fact, one thing that the pandemic has done is that it has inspired uh, personal reading in more people. So we, let's say before the pandemic in 2019, we had maybe 81% of uh, the US population saying that they had read one or more books. Today, we have 87% saying that, right? So in some ways it has almost resuscitated and, and is resuscitating. And let's hope that remains to be the case of uh, um, publishing and, and book publishing in the country. Uh, but I think readership is shifting and it's shifting really to a hybrid uh, space, right? Both digital and ob obviously tactile reading. People who still love, like I do, to hold a book in their hands, but also um, who rely on e-readers and tablets uh, to read as well. Tracy Hall, how are libraries funded? Libraries are funded in very uh, different ways. So when we think about the public library, you know, many of us um, probably who are listening may have heard about or voted for a millage or 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 something that uh, uh, legislation that would increase funding for our libraries. So public funding, okay. And then we think about school school libraries, which are uh, probably even more, so we have more public libraries today than we have McDonald's, I'm proud to say, but we have even more school libraries than that. And we see that school libraries continue to rely mostly on uh, funding for schools. And then we have academic libraries, be they university libraries or community colleges. And some of the university uh, libraries are private institutions, and so they're funded privately. And some of our community colleges are also uh, public, and they are funded that way too. So there's a variety of ways that libraries are funded, but they still rely on us to use and advocate for them. Without our usage, without that advocacy, libraries will suffer. And we really know that, especially with uh, so many people relying on libraries for access to education, for access to employment, and access to public health, I think part of our civic responsibility is to advocate for the funding of libraries. Well, Tracy Hall, I threw out the figure over 100,000 public libraries in the United States. How many members do you have or how many public libraries are there? Well, there are about 160,000 libraries altogether. And libraries, when we think about just the counting, and so that is public, school and academic. When we think about public libraries and how we count them, it can be a little bit tricky. Some count just the library or library system itself. So let's think about LA County Public Library, which has outlets or branches all across the vast county of Los Angeles. Some may count that library as one, but it really is a system. So safely, we can say that we have about 17,000 public libraries and over 100,000 school libraries. And, and then the rest are made up of academic libraries, be they university or community college, but also tribal libraries that exist on tribal land. And then there are library consortia and there are still private libraries or special libraries. So the universe or the omniverse of libraries is vast. Tracy Hall, when it comes to free speech and libraries, are there any books that are not allowed to be checked out by a library, from a library, or books that libraries are not allowed to get? 
Well, the responsibility of a librarian and those of us who work in libraries is to collect the entire record of, of intellectual thought and, and cultural production. So that's our responsibility. And, and also to make sure that the ideas that one book contains are put into conversation with uh, the ideas of other books and other authors. And, and also many times what we know is those ideas are sometimes in competition and contestation. So it is our responsibility to collect the entire human record. What we do know, and this is really important for us to think about today, is that we are in a period where the rise in book censorship and book challenges, um, I, would, I would think, have moved into a place that should be of general concern for everyone. Because what we know is that everyone should have the right to read. And there should be no one deciding what someone else should be reading. What we have seen is that when there is one person or a group of people deciding what other people have access to read, then that is also part of a slippery slope that begins to, uh, I think, encumber other human rights. We know that reading is a human right, but today I can tell you that uh, there are many, many book challenges, mostly around uh, books that contain the voices or the lived history of people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, uh, as well as books that speak about the histories, the lived histories, uh, that uh, ar around racism. And, and, and it's interesting because at a time where we should be really encouraging um, freedom of expression and examination to find a proliferation in the challenges of those books in particular uh, is, is something that we should all rally against, absolutely. Well, two of the most challenged books in 2020 were Alex Gino's uh, book, George, and Jason Reynolds and Ibram Kendi's book, Stomped. Why were those, Absolutely. what's the process? Who challenges those books and what is the major complaint? Well, num the number, the largest number of challenges that we see and as we track, a, the American Library Association now is tracking nearly 300 book challenges and involved in, in, uh, in really supporting and providing uh, guidance um, in, in terms of, of helping libraries navigate uh, those challenges. But what we find uh, with uh, challenges in, in the books that you've mentioned, um, as, well as, um, as well as others, right? And, and we are still seeing mice of, of mice and men, and, and we're still seeing The Bluest Eye and, and To Kill a Mockingbird, books that have already reached, um, uh, I think, uh, have become part of the literary canon. What we see is that these books are challenged because uh, of, 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 uh, of, of talking very blatantly about racism or sometimes about uh, sexuality or um, around all of the experiences. There's a genre called the building Roman novel. And especially for young people, it's a coming of age story. Catcher in the Rye is a classic one, right? So when we think about uh, the fact that these books, especially for young, young adults, the books you've mentioned, when we think about them being challenged, it's obviously because there are people who are not understanding that part of adolescent ideation is um, to ask yourself, 
who am I and what have been the experiences of other people who identify in the way that I'm beginning to identify? That's fundamental, right? And so um, I think that when we think about the challenges there, what we're realizing is that many times we turn to books to experiencing th experience things that we may never experience in life or want to. But what we want to understand is what are the kinds of things that are happening in the world and what are the what's the array of responses? And, and I think that that is really fundamental to adolescent ideation. And I've spent a lot of my time in uh, the adolescent development space. And what I do know is that it is so important to provide access free range of reading to young people to help them actually problem solve before they encounter a problem in real life. Should parents be allowed to censor what their children read? You know, uh, and right after the start of the pandemic, when we when we heard at the American Library Association, one of our di uh, divisions, the um, Association of Library Services to Children, understood that parents really found themselves thrust into the primary role, right, of teacher. So you found parents and caregivers asking themselves, how do I help um, to, to navigate now the primary role in my child's education that I've been thrust into, especially when we, we found so many young people uh, 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 doing school from, from home. And, and ALS created something called Look to Libraries to support parents and, and caregivers and, and really working with their children to expand their media literacy and to support fundamental reading literacy. So I think one of our main convictions is that parents definitely have a responsibility to support their child's reading and to curate their child's reading to ensure that their children are exposed to an array of ideas. But that responsibility for parents and caregivers is for their child and, and not for others. Because what parent would want someone else to dictate to them what their child should have, have access to read or what they or, or, or what they can't read. So I think that fundamentally a parent's responsibility or caregiver's responsibility is to their child and we need to make sure that all parents have that responsibility and it isn't taken away by someone else. Tracy Hall, during the 90s and early O's, Borders, Barnes and Noble became great big community spaces and then Amazon was on the rise as well with their books selling. What was the effect of all that on public libraries? Well, you know, public libraries, when we think about public libraries, we definitely think about books. And, and that is still uh, very much at the center of public libraries. But I think one thing that we haven't understood is that, especially over the last two decades, is that libraries, ounce for ounce, pound for pound, have become one of the primary outlets for both adult and early education. And so when we think about the programs, the educational programs, the recreational programs that bring people together. And when we think about the youth programs, when we think about the fact that even today, um, especially in the early days of the pandemic, libraries like the Chicago Public Library were even bringing uh, the Obamas, Michelle and, and President Barack Obama together for story time. What we see is that libraries still play a fundamental role in community convening because reading is a release and that is important. And, and libraries obviously are in that business, but we are also a community convener as well. And we are also a provider of key and critical services. So I think that there's really, 
there's a false competition between bookstores or Amazon. There is nothing like the library. There is no substitute for a public library, a school library, an academic library. So I, I think what we have to understand is that our learning is happening now across a campus that might consist of, uh, of, of people's homes. Let's not forget about um, let's not forget about the book clubs. A lot of them are going digital, right? And I think that we have to begin to think about the fact that the public library, the school library and academic library are unique institutions and there is no competitor. So it would be a false comparison. I think that what we have seen with uh, Amazon and, and with the ebb and flow of bookstores, and let's not forget independent bookstores, because when we were mourning and grieving them, many of them are coming back because they are really curating collections uh, that people want to read. The rise in bookstores um, that are run and operated and really focus on the literature of people of color, um, we're seeing definitely an increase there. So I think that when it comes to libraries, we are not only in the book business, we are in the education business and in the convening business. But can I just say one thing? I want to talk about uh, something that I think is super important. And I think it's I've talked about reading as release, but I, I really wanna talk about how important it is that we read together during these times of social distance still, right? When when we are fighting the various iterations of, of, of the COVID-19 um, pandemic. One thing that I am seeing people come together, in the 1800s, women were coming together um, with what uh, were called these literary clubs or book clubs, Margaret Fuller in the 1800s. In 1827, a group of, of Black women called the Young Women's Society created a, a, a reading club for women. And, um, and now what we're seeing is families come together, reading books and discussing them online. Children's books, for, to ensure that the children are included. Um, women and men in the family uh, may be cre uh, creating a book club in which each person can choose a book and they read together. I think it's really important also that these book clubs are involving older people who may not necessarily be able to be mobile and to be out um, during this period. So I just wanna encourage everyone, if you haven't already, and if you find yourself doing too many Zooms, add just one more to bring your community of friends or family or chosen family together over these ideas. And I, I think that there's something important about that right now, uh, about the power of literature still to this day to convene that we don't want to lose in this moment. Well, Tracy Hall, we talked a little bit about the funding for libraries earlier. How much do fines play in funding libraries? Fines really play a very nominal role. And, and that's something that I think libraries are realizing uh, in mass today. Uh, I was, um, I've been in several public libraries in the last few months. And uh, the first thing that uh, the li a librarian or a library director will tell me is that we have eliminated our fines. I think in some ways, uh, fines, and, and I just, this is a segue I'm always reading, so I have to share this. I'm reading a, a book right now, so I always read two books at, at the same time. I always read a fun book. I'm reading Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton. I'll definitely recommend it to everyone. It's about um, reimagining 
um, these 19 uh, interracial couple uh, of 1970 rockers and 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 what uh, happens to them when they when they break apart and then come back together. But I'm also reading Angela Davis's uh, Are Prisons Obsolete? Because I'm really trying to understand um, why I have seen the phenomenon of mass incarceration um, happen in, in the 22 years that I've been a librarian. But that being said, I think that there's something that Angela Davis is dealing with this idea of, of, of punitive measures to encourage um, uh, good behavior, that somehow, you know, there is, um, there's something there that doesn't work. And I think what we're seeing in libraries is that that civic sense of civic responsibility that I borrow a book and then return it for others, that that isn't encouraged. Uh, through fines. In fact, it discourages people sometimes, especially people who don't have the means of a $2 fine and just a shame sometimes can keep someone from not going to a library. That books are for use. That's one of the main rules of librarianship. And so what we're seeing is across the nation, libraries are beginning to rethink and many of them eliminate fines to encourage use. I think there are other ways like relationship building that can uh, support everyone and bringing back a book to make sure that others have uh, access to it. But I don't think fines are the way. What was the role of Andrew Carnegie in establishing libraries across the United States? Was that, was that uh, an important role at the time? It was a critical role. We Many books have been written about Andrew Carnegie, but one of the most significant things that I think that he did with his wealth and what I think puts him in, um, in, in, in the, I think the canon of philanthropy, if you will, uh, is, is his commitment um, to support the public good by uh, supporting the proliferation of public libraries across the country. And he did that everywhere. And let's remember that when public libraries were being built, uh, adult literacy was not normalized. In some areas, you had as many as three out of five adults not being uh, even, not even having limited literacy. So the public library was a very political type of campaign. It was to normalize literacy for adults, but it was also to make sure that, and this is something I want everyone to really hear, there was a time when uh, literacy was seen as a challenge to labor, that uh, there was, that, that labor, uh, in order for a laborer to be dependable, they really need to rely on their employer. And of course, what we know that reading does fundamentally is give people choices, right? And so what Carnegie was really doing and what libraries were doing, it was beginning to normalize adult literacy, to expand the rate of choices and decisions that adults could make. And I think that we are the better for it. I would say that the public library and the will and some other things are some of the most amazing technologies that we have seen um, in, in terms of uh, human evolution. Uh, the idea that reading should be uh, a fundamental human right um, and part of our, and that public libraries should be part, and school libraries and academic libraries should be part of our social uh, and educational infrastructure. Um, that was a radical idea then, and and I think it it stands out to me in terms of Carnegie for having that foresight. So we cannot, we can never underestimate uh, the role of of Andrew Carnegie uh, in 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 really purporting uh, adult literacy. So, Tracy Hall, final question. When Michelle Obama 
does reading time, or Laura Bush is a librarian and she's got the platform of the White House, or Barbara Bush is promoting reading. Does that make a difference? It absolutely does, right? But what makes even more of a difference is for parents and caregivers to model reading for their young people. Uh, what we know is that reading is critical. Reading is critical for in the pursuit of uh, higher education. It's critical for recidivism, uh, to, in, uh, to, to lesser recidivism. Uh, what we found is for people who are incarcerated, that their access to reading um, is one of the things that can lower the chances that they'll return to prison. Um, and we know that there are low literacy rates across the board in prison. So reading and modeling reading, um, and, and those of us who champion reading, and those of us who support and fund our libraries, those are critical acts critical acts. We're in a period where reading is relief, and we're seeing that by the increased numbers of people who say they're reading and borrowing ebooks from libraries and the programs that people are attending at libraries. But today, I think one of the most fundamental roles that we can play um, as people who care about each other and about this country and others uh, is to not only uh, champion reading, but to support the places where reading happens. And, and, and ultimately, that's libraries. Tracy Hall is the executive director of the American Library Association. She's been our guest on About Books. Thank you for your time. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And this is the About Books program and podcast. This is Book TV's look at the latest publishing news and nonfiction books. Well, the last two years have been difficult for book festivals across the country. Many have been forced to go virtual or what they're referring to as hybrid models. Well, as this spring approaches, book festivals are trying to return to in-person events. Here's what's coming up. The annual Savannah Book Festival in Georgia will be an in-person event. That's February 17th. Proof of vaccination is required to attend. Book TV will be covering several author events down there. And the Tucson Festival of Books will be held at the University of Arizona, March 12th and 13th. This year's featured authors include Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, as well as award-winning historian H.W. Brands and Annette Gordon-Reed. The Tucson Festival has grown exponentially since it started about 15 years ago. Then on April 9th, it's the Annapolis Book Festival in person in Maryland State Capitol. Some of the authors in attendance include journalist Susan Page. Her most recent book is about Speaker Pelosi. And the Washington Post's Craig Whitlock, author most recently of the Afghanistan Papers. 
And later in April, it's the 27th annual Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. It's held on the campus of the University of Southern California and looking forward to an in-person event, hopefully there. And on May 21st, the San Antonio Book Festival celebrates their 10th anniversary with a return to in-person author events. Now that's just a few of the book festivals coming up this spring. Look for Book TV's coverage of these festivals in the months ahead. And finally, here's some books being published this week. In Insurgency, New York Times correspondent Jeremy Peters looks at the last 30 years of the Republican Party and how it changed under President Trump. Phil Robertson, who was featured in the reality television program Duck Dynasty, weighs in on the cancel culture in Uncanceled. And in Smashing Statues, John Jay College criminal justice professor Aaron Thompson provides a history of America's public monuments and examines the current debates over whether they should remain standing. Also being published this week, author Chuck Klosterman looks back at the social, political, and technological happenings of the 90s, which were marked, of course, by the growth of the Internet. And in the 50s, Time Magazine former managing editor James Gaines profiles political activists of that era who upend the notion that the decade was synonymous with conformity. And that's this week's publishing news and the latest nonfiction books. Thanks for joining us for About Books. About Books is available wherever you get your podcasts, and it's available on C-SPAN's app, C-SPAN Now. 